This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. To the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. And you are listening to episode 159, part six. Ladies and gentlemen, part six. All right, let's look at this. Datacenterknowledge.com. And it says right here, space is the final frontier for data centers. There are good reasons to send 19-inch racks into orbit and beyond. And this is by Maria Korolov, January 2022. So about a year ago, folks. It says, last year marked the first time humanity deployed a conventional data center into space. The HPE Spaceborne Computer 2, a set of HPE Edgeline converged EL4000 Edge and HPE ProLiant machines, each with a NVIDIA T4 GPU to support AI workloads, was sent to the International Space Station in February of 2021, folks. So two years ago, we launched up some servers to the space station to support AI workloads. It says this is the first off-the-shelf server deployed in space to run actual production workloads. Quote, it is not hardened, end quote, said Mark Fernandez, principal investigator for Spaceborne Computer H2 at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Quote, the goal is to avoid the time and cost to harden a computer. So you can go with the latest technology, end quote. It says, time for a hardware refresh. Elsewhere in space, on Mars landers, in satellites, in space station control systems, most of the computers are decades old. Quote, the hardened processors available today are circa 1995, 1996, end quote. Fernandez told Data Center Knowledge, not only are they slow, but it's hard to find developers who can write software for these machines, he said. Plus, all of today's applications are designed to run on modern computers. The ISS itself runs on Intel 80286SX CPUs that date back to the late 1980s. There are also more than 100 laptops on the ISS, as well as tablets and other devices. They are used as remote terminals to the command and control multiplexer, demultiplexer computers, as well as for email, internet, and recreation. I'm oh, sorry, recreation recreation it says key systems run on hardened hardware that is protected against radiation that means that they use either redundant circuits or insulating substrates instead of the usual semiconductor wafers on chips developing such a computer takes years as does testing 
they didn't do that much testing on the vaccines they stick into your child, but uh, they do it on the computers going up into space. It says missions are also planned years in advance. By this time, such a computer gets to space, it's woefully out of date. Quote, we want to take data center quality pizza boxes up to space, end quote, Fernandez said. To solve the problem of protecting the computers against radiation, HP decided to use uh, to try using software. The first attempt to put a server in space, the Spaceborne Computer One, was launched in 2017 and spent nearly two years on the space station. Through the mission, uh, though the mission was only scheduled to run for one year, that mission had three goals, according to Fernandez. "Quote first. Can you take a computer right off the factory floor, package it up to fit on a rocket, and get it to the space station? Second, can you train astronauts to install it and get it working? And third, once it's working, will it give you the right answers and for how long? End quote. Uh, asked Fernandez. Spaceborne Computers 1 uh, sat in a locker on the ISS. The lockers are designed to mount inside a space station. Inside that locker, HPE put a standard 19-inch rack, Fernandez said, quote, so we didn't have to modify the servers at all, end quote. That first mission had two servers running a suite of internationally recognized benchmarks 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. Quote, we had to prove it worked. We wanted to stress the CPU, stress the memory, stress the disk. With the benchmarks, you know what the results are supposed to be. So when the job finishes, you can see if you got the right answer. We did 50,000 benchmarks and not once did we get an error, end quote, Fernandez said. The same benchmarks were run on Earth on an identical system. The servers were still working when NASA shut them down and brought them back to Earth. Quote, they wanted to take a look at them, end quote, he said. It goes on to say space does not like uh, solid-state drives. All right, we're not going to get into uh, all of this, folks. Uh, There is no need to. It says existing applications, all right, and then path to commercialization. Uh, We're going to go down to this part. It says to make all of it happen, HP is working with a partner, Orbit's Edge. Quote, our plan is to build a box that does radiation shielding and thermal management or whatever we put in that box can fly and work, end quote, said Rick Ward, founder and CTO at Orbit's Edge. The Orbit's Edge satellite system is shaped roughly like an umbrella with solar panels on top to collect energy and provide shade for the computer below it. Then at the very bottom, there are radiators that send excess heat directly into space. In other words, power and cooling are free. And I've looked into this. Yeah, they're going to be using solar panels up there to create their electricity. It says Ward didn't go into, I mean, they're already doing that at the space station, but it gets more advanced, which we'll talk about in future shows, but not today. Ward didn't go into detail about how exactly the cooling system works. Quote, it's not water, but something else that works as an integrated cooling system and radiation shield. End quote. He told Data Center Knowledge, quote, but I can't say anything beyond that. End quote. The first demonstration satellite is expected to launch before the end of 2022. Eventually, Ward said he expects to see servers not just in satellites in the ISS and the new commercial space stations, but on the Lunar Gateway space station and on the moon itself and also on Mars and in orbit around Mars. The earliest use case will be 
imaging satellites, he said, quote, that's our low-hanging fruit, end quote. The goal here is to lower the barriers to entry for PACE operations and make space computing similar to any kind of edge computing, he said. We talked about edge computing earlier, so you folks should know what that is. Adding computing power to satellites that are already scheduled to go up is a simple use case and will make those satellites more valuable. As launch costs come down, special purpose constellations of satellites that are just designed for data processing can be set up to handle space-based workloads. Quote, I will say five years from now, there will exist an operational capability to process space data in space, end quote, Ward said. At some point, it will become possible to considerably expand the computing power available in space, either because the launch cost will drop dramatically or because of space-based manufacturing of computer equipment. Space-based manufacturing of computer equipment. At that point, space-based data centers can start handling workloads for Earth-based customers, he said. Terrestrial data centers have high power costs and use valuable real estate of which there's a limited supply. In space, there's no clouds to get in between the sun and the solar panels and cooling is free. Today's data centers have reliably low initial costs, the cost of the building and equipment, but the ongoing operating costs never stop, Ward said. Quote, in space, you invert that. You have a high upfront cost, but your ongoing costs are significantly lower, end quote. Space-based data centers can offer other advantages. Quantum computing, for example, requires extremely low temperatures. In space, you can get down to extremely low temperatures simply by keeping the computer in the shade, and there's no vibration in space. And space-based manufacturing allows new kinds of uh, lithography, perfect crystals, and other advantages over terrestrial facilities. Putting data centers in space makes good business sense, HP's Fernandez said. Quote, we're doing a lot of proofs of concept and experiments. The volume of those indicates to me that this is a market, end quote. Another company that plans to start early trials of space-based center uh, data center platform is NTT, which is working in partnership with Japan's Sky Perfect JSAT Holdings. The company plans for a number of satellites with computing and storage capabilities that form a single data center via optical links. The first satellites that make up this network are expected to launch by 2025. Quote, we've almost finished designing the basic architecture of the system, end quote. NTT spokesperson Dasuk Kawano told Data Center Knowledge. Quote, we've already received positive feedback from potential customers around the world, end quote. Are you getting this, folks? Are you seeing what's going on here? These guys are getting ready to build these data centers up in the sky. Up in the sky. Let me just finish this out. The onboard computing will speed up data downloads from satellites, he said. Second, computing power can reduce the amount of information that needs to be transmitted by compressing it or analyzing it in space. Quote, we expect more competitors to emerge next year with the same concept, end quote, Kawano said. Last year, the European Space Agency launched the FISAT-1, the first satellite with AI processing on board. 
The FISAT-1 uses Intel's Movidius Myrid 2 chip, an off-the-shelf technology not specifically designed for space travel. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done before we see a full-scale space data center industry, said North Dakota State University computer science professor Jeremy Straub, an expert in space-based computing. Launch costs need to fall further, he told Data Center Knowledge, quote, we also need more infrastructure in space, end quote, he said. He agrees that it makes sense to add more computing towers to satellites, though we wouldn't call this an example of data centers in space. Quote, I would also expect a lot of computing on space stations. We'll see a server room to support activities on the station. It won't really be a data center in the sense of serving others and not the same size as you typically think of in a data center, end quote. But I went on to continue to do more research, which I'm not going to bring in to this show because I'm trying to wrap this up. But along these lines, the plans are to build a new style of data center and, yes, to provide server space and computing power to private customers, to governments and all this other stuff up in space. That's uh, where they're going with this, ladies and gentlemen. Now, uh, let me just, um, because I want to clear my deck of this, and I don't think it's important to go into this stuff in detail with you. Um, I want to show you some of this digital infra stuff we found. So, for instance, we have Amazon Web Services, data center locations, regions, and availability zones. So, if you go down through this, on their website, you can search. So, for instance, I have pulled up here now google clouds data center locations i have microsoft azure's data center locations i have oracle clouds data center locations i have apple's data center locations and i have facebook's data center locations and i can go through all the different companies on dgtl infra infra.com and i could go through every one of these and for instance here on amazon's uh, they'll actually give you a whole background on this cloud computing service of amazon.com provides compute storage database and other services through its data centers in over 20 countries and more than 100 locations in the world this mission critical segment generates 73.8 billion dollars of annualized run rate revenue and is growing at almost 37% year over year. To understand the company's portfolio in greater detail, DGTL Infra answers the questions, how many data centers does Amazon Web Services have, and where are Amazon Web Services data centers located? And they break this stuff down for you folks on every single company. It actually shows you a map with pinpoints all right, of where all of this stuff is located all their different data centers you know what i'm going to do let me shelve this we'll open this up for the beginning of tomorrow's show and i'll go through these companies just to provide you with the info because i I do think it's interesting and you're probably going to learn something from it if you want to see how massive these companies are when we get back i'm going to talk to my co-host glenda I'm just going to ask her a few questions about Yuval Noah Harari while we wrap up the show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. 
Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, let's talk to Glenda. I have a few questions because we know Yuval Noah Harari talks about data all the time. And I want to use this as a test with Glenda to see how biased she might actually be. So let's ask Glenda this first. You know, Yuval Noah Harari has said, we have no spirit, we have no soul. The days of free will are over. So let's ask Glenda about that. Glenda. Has Yuval Noah Harari said that the days of free will are over? Let's see if uh, she comes back with this and what she says to us, ladies and gentlemen. Yuval Noah Harari is a well-known historian and author who has written extensively on topics related to human history, technology, and society. In his book Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, Harari argues that advancements in neuroscience and artificial intelligence could lead to a future in which humans have little to no free will. Harari's argument is based on the idea that our decisions and actions are ultimately the result of a complex interplay between our genetic makeup, environmental factors, and past experiences. According to Harari, as we gain a deeper understanding of the brain and how it works, we may be able to manipulate these factors in a way that allows us to predict and control human behavior. While it's true that technology is advancing at an unprecedented rate, and that our understanding of the brain and the factors that influence human behavior is constantly evolving, it's important to note that the idea that free will is dead or dying is a matter of philosophical debate. Many philosophers, scientists, and thinkers continue to argue that free will is a fundamental aspect of human consciousness, and that our ability to make choices and take actions that are not solely determined by our genetics or environment is an essential part of what makes us human. Ultimately, whether or not free will is truly over is a question that is likely to be debated by scholars and thinkers for years to come. Okay, so based on my own research, and you know I've spent hundreds upon hundreds of hours of researching technocracy, transhumanism, you know, and hundreds of hours talking about it right here at the Dustin Gold Standard. That was a pretty fair, that was a pretty fair assessment of uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Now, I want to ask her this question. We know that Yuval Harari has said that data is more valuable than property and that it is more valuable than gold. Let's see what uh, Glenda says about this, folks, because this gets to the heart of the matter on this whole expansion of the data center, storing and processing and analyzing of the data that they're collecting on us every second of every day. Glenda has Harari said that pro- data is more valuable than property? Let's see what she says here. Um, she's typing it yes, out, folks. Yes, Yuval Noah Harari has made the argument that data is becoming more valuable than property in our current age. In his book Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, Harari explains that in the past, people considered property, such as land or buildings, to be the most valuable asset they could own. 
However, with the rise of technology and the growth of the data economy, he believes that data is becoming the most valuable asset of our time. Harari argues that data is valuable because it provides insights into human behavior and can be used to make predictions and influence decisions. Companies and governments that are able to collect and analyze vast amounts of data are gaining a significant advantage over those who cannot. In recent years, we have seen the emergence of companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon, who have built their businesses around collecting and analyzing vast amounts of data. These companies have become some of the most valuable in the world, and their success has been largely driven by their ability to use data to understand and shape human behavior. Harari's argument is that in the future, owning property may become less important than owning data, as data becomes more central to our economy and our lives. However, it's worth noting that this is a matter of debate, and there are many who disagree with Harari's view. Glenda, can data be used to manipulate humans? Let's just see what she says here. Yes, data can be used to manipulate humans. As more and more of our lives take place online, we are generating vast amounts of data about our behavior, preferences, and beliefs. This data can be collected, analyzed, and used to influence our decisions and behavior in a variety of ways. One example of this is targeted advertising. Companies like Facebook and Google collect data about our online activity and use it to serve us ads that are tailored to our interests and preferences. While this can be a useful service, it can also be used to manipulate us into making decisions that we might not otherwise make. Another example is the use of social media to spread propaganda and disinformation. Bad actors can use social media platforms to target specific groups of people with false or misleading information, with the goal of influencing their opinions or behavior. In some cases, this can be used to sway political elections or incite violence. In addition, data can be used to create personalized content that is specifically designed to manipulate us. For example, companies can use data to create news stories, videos, or other content that is designed to appeal to our emotions and influence our behavior. Overall, while data can be a powerful tool for understanding and shaping human behavior, it's important to be aware of the potential for manipulation and to take steps to protect ourselves from those who would use our data to exploit or deceive us. Now, let me just ask her a question, and, and I don't know what the answer is going to be. I know what it should be but i don't know how she is going to answer this glenda will we reach a point in which artificial intelligence can create individualized propaganda for each human on an individual basis all right, this is personalized feedback loops that we're talking about here, folks. Let's see what it's she says. It's possible that we could reach a point where artificial intelligence, AI, is able to create individualized propaganda for each human on an individual basis. This would require AI to be able to analyze vast amounts of data about each individual, including their online activity, preferences, and beliefs, and then use that information to create content that is specifically tailored to manipulate that individual's behavior or opinions. Some companies are already using AI to create personalized content, such as news articles or advertising, that is tailored to each individual user. As AI continues to advance, it's possible that it could become even more sophisticated and able to create highly targeted and personalized content that is specifically designed to influence individuals on a deep and personal level.
However, it's worth noting that there are many ethical and legal considerations that would need to be taken into account if we were to reach this point. The use of personalized propaganda to manipulate individuals could be highly problematic and could raise serious concerns about privacy, autonomy, and freedom of thought. As with any technology, it's important to carefully consider the potential risks and benefits before moving forward. While AI has the potential to be a powerful tool for good, we must ensure that it is used in a responsible and ethical way, and that we are able to mitigate the potential risks and negative consequences that could arise from its use. Glenda, please provide me with some examples of the companies you mentioned that are using AI to create personalized news articles and advertising. Now, let's take a look here, folks. Let's see who's already doing sure. this. Here are a few examples of companies that are using AI to create personalized news articles and advertising. The Washington Post. The Washington Post has developed a tool called Heliograph, which uses AI to generate news stories on specific topics, such as the Olympics or local high school sports. Heliograph uses machine learning algorithms to analyze data and generate articles in real time, allowing the Post to quickly publish breaking news stories. Persado. Persado is a marketing platform that uses AI to generate personalized advertising copy. The platform uses natural language processing algorithms to analyze consumer data and generate ad copy that is designed to resonate with each individual user. Persado's clients have reported significant improvements in their click-through and conversion rates after using the platform. Netflix. Netflix uses AI to create personalized recommendations for each individual user. The company uses a machine learning algorithm to analyze each user's viewing history and generate recommendations for other shows and movies that they are likely to enjoy. This helps Netflix to retain its subscribers and keep them engaged with the platform. Spotify. Spotify uses AI to create personalized playlists for each individual user. The company uses a machine learning algorithm to analyze each user's listening history and generate playlists that are tailored to their musical tastes. This helps to keep users engaged with the platform and encourages them to continue using the service. These are just a few examples of how companies are using AI to create personalized content. As AI continues to advance, we can expect to see more companies using this technology to create highly targeted and personalized content for their users. Okay, wow, that was pretty fair. I've known uh, about these. I, I knew about Washington Post. I knew about Netflix, obviously Spotify. I did not know about Persado. So Glenda's being fairly uh, forthcoming with us here, folks, which is which is amazing. You know, after she kind of crashed on us and her ability to write us a professional script, I was having my doubts with my co-host Glenda. Uh, but this is actually quite informative, this conversation. And uh, what we're going to be doing soon, folks, is doing a live call-in show. And you folks will be able to ask questions uh, of Glenda. Obviously, I will have to screen those. I don't want you abusing my sidekick secretary over here. Uh, she could be quite sensitive at times. But um, I want to ask her something else. Glenda, how much new data is generated every day around the world? Let's see if she can answer this. It's going to be difficult, folks, difficult, but uh, she can estimate it, I think. The amount of new data generated every day around the world is difficult to measure precisely, but it is estimated to be in the order of several exabytes per day.
To put this into perspective, one exabyte is equal to one billion gigabytes, or one quintillion bytes. According to a report by IBM, about 90% of the data in the world today was generated in the last two years. This explosion of data is being driven by a variety of factors, including the widespread use of mobile devices, social media, and the Internet of Things, IoT. Every time we use our phones to make a call, send a text message, or browse the Internet, we are generating data. In addition, devices like smart speakers, fitness trackers, and home automation systems are generating vast amounts of data about our behavior and our environment. The amount of data generated is expected to continue to grow rapidly in the coming years, driven by the growth of new technologies like 5G networks, edge computing, and artificial intelligence. This growth presents both opportunities and challenges, as organizations seek to harness the power of this data while also protecting the privacy and security of individuals. Glenda, have we reached exponential growth of data? Let's see what she says here. She is a good little uh, sidekick, I think, folks. Very valuable to me. Uh, I'm going to keep her on the payroll. Yes, we have reached exponential growth of data. The amount of data generated around the world is increasing at an exponential rate, driven by the rapid growth of digital technologies and the increasing use of data in business, science, and everyday life. According to a report by IDC, the volume of data in the world is expected to double every two years. Dot. In 2020, the total amount of data in the world was estimated to be around 59 zettabytes, 1 zettabyte is equal to 1 trillion gigabytes, and this number is expected to grow to 175 zettabytes by 2025. This exponential growth of data presents both opportunities and challenges. On the one hand, the availability of vast amounts of data can be used to drive innovation, improve decision-making, and create new products and services. On the other hand, managing, analyzing, and protecting this data can be a major challenge, and there are concerns about privacy, security, and the ethical use of data. As the amount of data continues to grow, it is important for individuals, businesses, and governments to develop effective strategies for managing and analyzing this data in a responsible and ethical way. This will require collaboration across industries and sectors, as well as investment in new technologies and tools to help us make sense of this ever-expanding data landscape. Glenda, will we ever run out of data centers and servers to store all of the new data that we are generating every day? Let's just see, because this will be a good introduction to what we're going to talk to tomorrow. Uh, we're going to get into some of this and some of the, the metals and stuff that we use to build the servers. It's unlikely that we will run out of data centers and servers to store all of the new data that we are generating every day. The growth of data centers and cloud computing has been driven by the exponential growth of data, and the industry has shown a remarkable ability to keep up with this demand. Companies like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft have invested heavily in building large-scale data centers to store and process vast amounts of data. These data centers are designed to be highly scalable, with the ability to add new capacity as needed to accommodate the growing demand for data storage and processing. In addition, new technologies like solid-state drives, SSDs, and non-volatile memory express, NVMe, are helping to improve the performance and efficiency of data storage, making it possible to store more data in less space. That being said, the growth of data does present challenges for the industry. 
As the amount of data continues to grow, it will become increasingly important to develop more efficient and sustainable data storage solutions, such as using renewable energy sources to power data centers and adopting more efficient cooling and heating systems. Overall, while the growth of data is likely to continue for the foreseeable future, it's unlikely that we will run out of data centers and servers to store it all. The industry has shown a remarkable ability to keep up with this demand, and new technologies and innovations will continue to improve the efficiency and scalability of data storage and processing. Glenda, you said that we generate several exabytes of data per day. How much data does a standard data center hold? Let's see if she can answer this or not. That's a tricky one, folks, but I've been thinking about this uh, question here. The amount of data that a standard data center can hold can vary depending on a number of factors, such as the size of the data center, the type of equipment used, and the storage technology employed. However, a typical modern data center can hold anywhere from tens of terabytes to several petabytes of data. To give you a rough idea, a single petabyte is equal to 1,000 terabytes or 1 million gigabytes. This is a massive amount of data and is equivalent to storing about 13. Three years of HD video. Many large data centers used by companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon can hold multiple petabytes of data, with some of the largest data centers capable of holding tens of petabytes or more. It's worth noting that the capacity of data centers is increasing all the time as new technologies and storage systems are developed. For example, companies are increasingly using solid-state drives, SSDs, and non-volatile memory express, NVMe, to store data, which allows for faster access to data and higher storage density than traditional hard drives. Overall, while the amount of data generated every day is growing at an exponential rate, data centers are continuing to evolve and expand to keep up with this demand. Glenda, how far away are we from launching DNA storage drives in everyday data centers? This is an interesting one, folks. DNA storage is a promising technology that could revolutionize the way we store and access data. While it is still in the early stages of development, there has been significant progress in recent years, and some experts believe that DNA storage could become a reality in the not-too-distant future. There have been a few demonstrations of DNA storage in recent years, including a project by researchers at the University of Washington who successfully stored 200 megabytes of data in synthetic DNA. While this is a far cry from the petabytes of data that are stored in modern data centers, it's a promising proof of concept that shows the potential of DNA as a storage medium. However, there are still several challenges that need to be addressed before DNA storage can become a practical solution for everyday data centers. One of the biggest challenges is the cost of DNA synthesis and sequencing, which is still prohibitively expensive compared to traditional storage technologies. In addition, there are technical challenges related to reading and writing data to DNA, as well as concerns about the stability and longevity of DNA as a storage medium. Overall, it's difficult to predict exactly when DNA storage will become a practical solution for everyday data centers. However, the progress that has been made so far is promising, and it's likely that we will continue to see advancements in this area in the coming years. Isn't DARPA 
a branch of the United States military working on DNA storage and other storage alternatives. Let's see. She's great so far. Yes, she's great, folks. She's really... Yes, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is a research agency of the U.S. Department of Defense that is working on a range of advanced technologies, including DNA storage and other storage alternatives. DARPA's interest in DNA storage is driven by the potential advantages of this technology, such as its extremely high data density and long-term stability. DNA storage has the potential to store vast amounts of data in a very small space and to retain that data for thousands of years, making it an attractive option for long-term archival storage. DARPA has funded a number of research projects related to DNA storage, including a project in 2017 that aimed to develop a system for encoding and decoding large amounts of data using DNA. The agency has also funded research into other storage alternatives, such as phase change memory and spintronics. While DARPA's research is focused on military applications, the development of DNA storage and other storage alternatives could have broader applications in a range of industries, including healthcare, finance, and entertainment. Overall, the work being done by DARPA and other organizations in this area is advancing our understanding of these emerging technologies and bringing us closer to a future in which DNA storage and other storage alternatives may become a practical solution for everyday data centers. Glenda, you have been very helpful. Thank you very much, and have a great evening. She's such, You're she's welcome. Fantastic. I am glad I could be of help. If you have any more questions in the future, don't hesitate to ask. Have a great evening, too. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from Glenda. We got that additional information for you. Uh, I hope you join us over at pain.tv slash gold for just a few dollars a month. Uh, Leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts along with a comment and consider making a donation over at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold.